0: Since the early aftermath of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, many major Western companies have been in various stages of divesting from Russia. The withdrawal that probably generated the most headlines and resonated best with ordinary folks was when McDonald's left. The quintessential American fast food chain symbolized the arrival of capitalism when it famously opened shop in Moscow's Pushkin Square in 1990. When it left last year, After the invasion, it was replaced by an awkwardly named copycat business called Tasty and That's It, Vkusna which generated another round of amusement. Nearly a year and a half later into the war, we've entered a new phase of business relations in Russia as the Kremlin has started nationalizing foreign companies' Russian assets. Earlier this week, President Putin placed the Russian subsidiaries of French yogurt maker Danone and Danish brewer Carlsberg under the Russian state's temporary management, effectively seizing these businesses. The Federal Property Management Agency has already entrusted Danone Russia's CEO position to Ramzan Kadyrov's nephew. So let's talk about Russia's nationalization of foreign companies' assets and how the sanctions competition between Moscow and the West has evolved. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English language edition. There were some interesting developments this week in the world of Russian business politics, in addition to Ramzan Kadira's nephew's new job. As CEO of Danone Russia, the U.S. Treasury imposed sanctions against Alexei Kudrin, the former economic government official who now serves as Yandex's corporate development advisor. Sources told journalist Ferida Rustamova that Kudrin's new status could actually derail the latest efforts to sell off Yandex's Russian assets and trigger yet another nationalization. Russia's relationship with foreign companies seems to be entering a new phase and growing even colder than it became after the February 2022 invasion. The latest watershed moment in Russia occurred on April 25th, when Putin issued an executive order allowing the Russian authorities to place the Russian assets of companies from unfriendly nations under the state's temporary administration. As part of that executive order, Russia seized the assets of Uniper Russia, including Uniper's 84% stake in the power generation company Unipro, which was valued at $5.5 billion before the invasion. This effectively nationalized almost five percent of Russia's total power capacity. We're talking twelve of two hundred and fifty gigawatts. Almost a year earlier, when the Finnish state-owned energy company Fortun Fortum had a controlling stake in Uniper, the owners reportedly had ready buyers for the Russian assets, but the Kremlin blocked the sale with an earlier executive order forbidding Western investors in certain industries, including the energy sector from selling off the Russian businesses without special permission. Even after the German government bailed out and then bought up Uniper outright, there were still reportedly willing bidders in Russia hoping to buy the company's local assets. But Putin shut the door without letting a deal go through. The Russian president packaged his April 2023 decision as retaliation against Western states nationalizing and freezing Russian companies' property abroad. From his perspective, the Kremlin was effectively getting back some of what had already been taken from Gazprom, and especially from Rosneft. Russia's deputy finance minister has even said openly that Uniper's Russian business was placed under Rosneft's management as a form of compensation, basically. German courts have ruled that Rosneft's assets weren't nationalized, but placed under external management necessary for the smooth operation of enterprises. And German lawmakers have even amended energy industry regulations to facilitate this process without formally nationalizing the Russian company's assets. Now, when Putin did his version of this to a state-owned German company, it seemed like he was sparing private foreign companies, probably to protect Russia's own private companies with assets in the West. On July 16th, however, Putin crossed this Rubicon as well, when he issued a new executive order giving the same external management treatment to the Russian subsidiaries of French yogurt maker Danone and Danish brewer Carlsberg. until then the owner of the Baltica brewery. In an interview this week with Medusa, the general director of Transparency International Russia, Ilya Shumanov, argued that hiring Kadyrov's nephew as CEO at Danone Russia is another reward for the Chechen warlord's loyalty. But it also represents a delicate balancing act that Moscow is constantly
1: performing with regional
0: elites.
1: I think putting this business under external management is connected with a fight over this asset between a whole constellation of likely interested parties. I mentioned that those in line included Rusagro's Vadim Moshkovich, AFK Sistema's Vladimir Yevtushenkov, through the STEP Agroholding, the Tikachev Agriculture Complex, even former Agriculture Minister Alexander Tikachev, the Econiva Company, the Cherkizovo Group, and Tatarstan's agro-industry holdings. Yesterday evening or sometime later, there were reports from the dairy industry outlet Milk News that the new board chairman wasn't Yakub Zakhryev, but Ruslan Alisoltanov, another official from the Chechen Republic, basically Yakub Zakriev's right-hand man. Also, the board of directors would be getting people connected to the agro-industrial sector, particularly Mentimir Mingazov, the son of a former Federation Council senator representing the Republic of Tatarstan who now owns one of Tatarstan's agro-industrial holdings. And, apparently, he might be someone who's interested in further acquiring this holding because the Mingazovs are well-known in Tatarstan and among professionals in the agricultural sector. I mentioned the Tatars. These various Tatar clans and connections with Chechens, I think, might lead us to the conclusion that they could eventually be the ultimate beneficiaries here and win this asset, if not for free, then at an enormous discount. I think this is both a reward for loyalty and an opportunity to integrate suppliers associated with the Chechen elites into the supply chain. At the same time, it's also a mediation process. Because the names I've mentioned – moshkovich Yevtushinkov, Tikachov, Sergei Dankvert, Tatarstan elites – this is a big group of heavy hitters who are essentially trying to win this asset through their connections. It seems like they needed to line people up properly explain the state's priorities and hand it over to those who deserve it in the view of the Russian authorities and the Agriculture Ministry and Kadyrov's interests, who might also get a share, a commission, as you called it, from this deal. It's important to note that Russian Agriculture Minister Dmitry Patrushev recently visited Chechnya, and this trip apparently became the starting point of negotiations. And maybe in the late spring, Patrushev and Kadyrov discussed the decision to transfer Danone, That's my guess. Anyway, it was just such a huge meeting, it got a lot of media coverage. But what did they discuss in these informal talks? I assume it was both foreign companies' remaining assets in Russia, and maybe in Ukraine's occupied territories. Attempts by Danone and
0: Carlsberg to sell off their Russian assets hit a wall when the Kremlin blocked their divestment. The tech giant Yandex has also been having trouble finding buyers that satisfy everyone for its Russian assets which include Kinopoisk, Yandex Go, Yandex Maps, and more. On July 17th, Medusa and The Bell reported that the Kremlin's domestic policies are: First Deputy Chief of Staff Sergei Kiryenka, is advocating a new plan that would steer these businesses to buyers connected to Yuri Kovalchuk, the billionaire known as Vladimir Putin's personal banker. And this would consolidate his control over the commanding heights of the Russian internet and expand the Kremlin's influence over this industry. Now, that report ended with a source close to Yandex's management revealing that the company's executives still fear outright nationalization. And hours before I recorded these exact words, the U.S. Treasury hit Yandex corporate development advisor Alexei Kudrin, remember him, with economic sanctions, potentially threatening Yandex's sale in Russia, where the company's foreign board of directors has refused to do business with sanctioned individuals. With all this going on, Desperate for some guidance on Russian elite politics. I spoke to Alexandra Prokopenko, a non-resident scholar at the Carnegie Russia Eurasia Center, who also worked at Russia's Central Bank and at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow from 2017 until early 2022. Has the war made Russian businessmen and big business in Russia has it made them richer? Has this been good for business?
2: Actually, no. A year and a half after this unprovoked and full-scale invasion, we can uh, identify the certain groups of war beneficiaries, and that's uh, definitely military industry complex and businesses which are related to military industry complex, like textile enterprises who are doing uniform, they are contractors, and so and so and so. But the rest of the business, I wouldn't say that they are enjoying the new way of living, but they didn't lost a lot because of the exchange rate. So I wouldn't say that their losses during last year in terms of money were significant, but in terms of so-called transactional costs, they were. We know that there are a couple of industries which are experiencing very tough times, like automotive industry and the lumber industry. They faced a, a real crisis because uh, their market was in europe and it was closed but for the rest i mean the losses was not so significant in terms of money but great in terms of transactional costs because for companies they need to find the new customers in asian markets they need to rebuild these uh, supply chains uh, they need to adjust their goods their products to the new um, customers so that's not easy actually and usually it takes not only time, but also some investments. That was also a reason why the figures on investments for the last year for Russia wasn't so bad.
0: How does the Kremlin actually control Russian oligarchs and big business? Like sometimes we talk about these big business people like they own and control these large assets. And other times they're described just as sort of placeholders. How much top-down control do you think there is?
2: I think, well, basically what we observed in recent years is Putin can simply call any owner of a large bunch of assets and asks for something. And we can uh, see his phone list surrounding him on the annual Putin's meeting with businesses, which usually took place in December in Kremlin. Not all of them, but most part of them were on this meeting with the business on the day of the invasion. So... There are different kinds of controls. First, which is really important, Putin directly calls to businessmen and asks them for a different kind of favors. This could be something like, I don't know, he can ask to build a theater or to um, put some money on some project with with cultural or some sort of public value or more often um, sports objects, sports venues. But there are also other uh, different Waves to regulate this, Putin can uh, give direct orders to the prime minister or to deputy prime ministers that some part of assets should belong to some certain people, like they call it in Russia, themes or topic. So there are some people who are control something like digital marks for goods or digitalization in utilities or something like this. So, and Putin directly says okay, here is the oligarch who will control this and who will get benefits from this. If someone is disagree, there is, as far as I remember, there is no arguing point. So all these argues are behind the scenes and managed in the government offices. But if someone uh, disagree locally, Putin always can send FSB or general attorney and as we know from the report of uh, General Krasnov to Putin that, well, uh, his office usually involved in such kind of actions with uh, different assets.
0: And have any sort of like genuine bona fide oligarchs actually divested from Russia and left? Like who's the most prominent, rich or powerful business person to have left since the February 2022 invasion?
2: I would say Mikhail Friedman. Of course, he tried to whitewash himself. Yeah. But if we pick up the recent lists of attendees of meetings with Putin, Friedman always been there. Well, who else? Pyotr raven who was in Russia and now who is in London, as we know, locked in his mansion without any money to pay... To war. pay the cleaners. To the cleaners, right. <laughs> so who else? I wouldn't say that Alexinkov was influential, but he was definitely rich.
0: So has there been a pretty... Like the, there's been group solidarity among the the rich oligarchs of or like the business elite in Russia has for the most part sort of stuck around and is that what you, you're saying or
2: no 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 I'm just saying the names of people yeah
0: yeah but do you think generally as sort of a political class or an economic class I wouldn't say held-
2: no 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 I, I think it's single persons who left Russia. And there are several of people, we don't know where they are. I mean, like no right. Prokhorov.
0: Yeah, there are a few yeah. people who have left. We don't know where they are, but...
2: Yeah, who are somewhere.
0: The ones who have stayed, is that most of them? Like
2: Most of them have stayed. And for most of them, now being in Russia, in terms of assets, it's safer than to be uh, sure. where else. <laughs> right. I mean, of course, they invented this word toxic to dollar and euro or to Western compliance system, Western financial system. But, well, in Russia, their assets for now, at least, they're safe even from uh, Siloviks, because no one, will, no, one, no, no, no one will go there and no one will ask them to share with their money because of the situation. Because otherwise, they will go, all go to cash, I think.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's what we actually see. I mean, the closest Putin's allies, Rotenbergs, now selling their assets. Not for cheap, but during last year, I think, they sold almost everything they had. So now they are in cash, and I don't have answer why do they need so much cash.
0: They sold everything they had in Russia or in the West in or everywhere?
2: In Russia, I think so. In the West, they uh, hold the different kind of assets via some fronts, via officers, via their representatives. But in Russia, they sold the bank. They sold uh, some construction assets. I don't know why.
0: What about the Western companies that have left Russia? Has there been a big fight? For those assets is that a big opportunity for russian business people and big business just to gobble those up at a cheap price or even to get them through like maybe nationalization if that ever
2: of course i think it's it's a good opportunity for them to get to at least get some more than equipment because the value of a western company wasn't only in some sort of hard assets like equipment or construction lines or something like this but it also on management culture, on technology, the way how to manage the enterprise. So these two options were gone, were removed. But I think that Russian businesses, as Russian top bureaucrats, first days, first months after the war, they were quite sure that Western businesses are not withdrawing forever. So there were some sort of, as far as I know, there were t- kind of talks that please hold this for a while and then we come back. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, this statistics isn't publishing, but I heard that most part of companies left with three years' option to come back
0: and that's still in play
2: and that's still in place. There should be two kind of explanations: the first one that they really expect to come back. but the second can be financial that this kind of option doesn't ruining the balance sheet of the holding mm-hmm. also a problem for a balance sheets. i mean, if you previously had big investments to Russia and now you're facing larger write-offs. It's ruining your balance sheet. And because you're a public company, it's lowering your capitalization. So that might be very uncomfortable for Western CEOs.
0: China is obviously part of the conversation when talking about where Russia has had to turn for a lot of its trade and so on and imports and exports. Has there been any competition between Russian businesses and Chinese business interests who are sort of trying to either move into the the markets that the Western companies have left or trying to move and see and acquire some of the assets that they've abandoned? Like, is there any competition there or that's not really a a phenomenon?
2: I don't think that there is a competition there. So China knows how to play the role of the global markets of supplier of different kind of roots. And they are enjoying this position, and now they are providing more than a third of the whole imports to Russia. It's close to the 40% of all imports which Russia gets goes from China, and China is enjoying this. And they are not going to Russian markets directly, so they are not interested, as far as I know, to get shares in Russian enterprises. And obviously, because they see what Russia now do with Western companies... So I can hardly believe that one day uh, Putin will uh, go with the war to China. But for investor, it doesn't matter from the West you are or from the East. The rules should be equal to everyone. And uh, Chinese investors are very careful to this. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't think that there is a competition. So China is enjoying its position of new market for Russian companies and a new market for Chinese goods. And for Chinese companies, not from the first row, like Huawei, who are, as far as I know, uh, closing its operations to Russia, but Chinese companies from a second row or third row, or even companies who were established directly for the trade with Cuba or with Iran. So basically, the rest of the world doesn't know even these names.
0: Mm-hmm. This actually brings me to the last question I have. Has declining transparency, both with Russian economic data, Russian trade data, with just whatever we know about business operations generally happening in Russia has this led to a growth in either the gray or the black economies inside Russia or like is the expert sort of awareness of what's happening in the Russian economy what's the state of it right now would you say like you're pretty confident that experts can estimate and measure what's happening or is the picture really kind of unclear
2: as an expert i can say we have still plenty of data to to make our own opinion what's happening with the Russian economy independently, and of course, there are lots of different voices who wants to say that all statistics or all data which comes from Russia are fake, but it's simply not true. Of course, it's much more complicated to do forecasting because very important parts of Russian statistics like oil output now is classified, or some detailed statistics from export and import operations are classified. But there are still lots of alternative sources and for expertise. We trained a lot analyzing China. And now we're simply using these tools to analyze Russia. For instance, there is some data on pollution, which shows that Russian military industry complex works, I mean, three shifts, four shifts. And like, it looks like that they were prepared to the wars because they raised their inputs in 2021. And that wasn't simply the growth after the pandemic. So um, it's much more complicated, but it's not the problem. The problem is that Russian economy is non-sustainable in the long term. And what we see now, I would call like canes in the boats because the way how Russian state redistribute money shifted towards military industry complex and its beneficiaries, not only in terms of contracts, but also... The groups of people like those who, who get social payments in poor regions and families of soldiers and so on and so And all this created a bunch of war beneficiaries and on them right now, the Russian GDPs lie on, which is odd, to be mm-hmm. honest.
0: Kind of, it seems like Soviet in many ways, I suppose.
2: It seems like Soviet like anyway, yeah. And we all know how Soviet. Um, <laughs>
0: that's yeah. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.